Life Audio. Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Perseus Poku. On today's episode, I have a treat. First uh, Peter 3.15 reminds us to always sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. Be ready to always answer or give a response to each man or woman, a reason for the hope that lies within us, and to do it with gentleness and respect. And after a word from our sponsors, we'll get started on the topic today. Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Uh, There's a new book out called The Evidence for Jesus with the subtitle uh, Timeless Answers for Tough Questions About Christ. And it's composed by uh, great apologists, um, Josh McDowell, as well as Sean McDowell. And for our show today, we have uh, as our guest, uh, Dr. Sean McDowell. Sean, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me back, Percy. Great. Thanks for being back. And this book, I really love it because it encapsulated encapsulate the great things from evidence that demands a verdict. And so please tell me, why uh, did you and your father feel a need to write this particular book? Well, as you know, Evidence that Demands Verdict is a massive book, over 700 <laughs> pages in length. Right. It's- meant to be a resource guide, not so much read straight through, although it amazes me how many people actually <laughs> read it straight through. Right. And I've always felt like, you know, the book More Than Carpenter is an evangelistic kind of synopsis to that book. But I kind of felt like we don't have a book that just takes the heart of the issues for Jesus mm-hmm. and puts it in ideal length for individual study, small group, classroom. So that was kind of the motivation in different formats. But also, when I updated evidence with my dad, it came out in 2017, and it's kind of amazing how much new evidence there is, even in that past, what, you know, seven years, six years since it first came out. Well, we, I, I appreciate it. I enjoyed reading uh, this Evidence for Jesus book, and even though it's smaller in size, it's, it's about 240-something pages, but it's not 
the length of the book that matters is the nuggets that you have in there. That to me is just a great resource. So let's kind of highlight some of the things that um, I ascertained from the book as I was looking through it. Uh, Please touch on the internal evidence uh, that we have for the historicity of Jesus Christ. Well, what we mean by internal evidence is evidence inside the Bible itself. So, of course, there is the Bible itself. Now, some people will say, you can't use the Bible. It's biased. It's a religious document. Do you have any non-Christian sources? My first question is, if you want to know if Caesar existed, do you start by saying, give me any non-Roman sources because those are biased? And the answer is no. That's one valuable source that are Roman. And the same is true of the Bible. So these are, the New Testament is 27 different books written by a range of different authors that all individually attest at least minimally to the existence of Jesus. So we have the four books of the Gospels, we have Acts, we have the letters of Paul, and then of course the epistles like 1 John and 1 Peter and Hebrews that at least attest that Jesus was a historical person. I appreciate that. Now, um, I, I do also uh, enjoy the non-biblical references because, as you said, uh, some people, for whatever reason, reject the historicity of the Bible. And so to have other uh, external evidence corroborating the Bible stories, that touches other people a different way. So uh, please touch on individuals like Tacitus and why their stories are important. Yeah, this is a great follow-up question. So when we talk about uh, non-biblical sources, we have early Christian writers and we have non-Christian writers. So early Christian writers would be the end of the first century, like Clement of Rome, who refers specifically as Jesus Christ sent from God, referring to him as a historical figure. We have Ignatius writing in the early second century who refers to him as a historical figure from the race of David. We have Polycarp as you move into the second century. Happiest, there's a range of church fathers, many of whom received the message from the apostles themselves that affirmed the existence of Jesus and basic facts around his life. When you go outside the Gospels and you find writers like Josephus, the end of the first century, who's a writer that has at least two references to the historical Jesus, and these are somewhat debated and contested and we enter into that debate a little bit, but in terms of a case minimally for the existence of Jesus, Josephus helps in that regard. And then Tacitus, who's a Roman writer, early second century, also refers to the crucifixion of Jesus under Tiberius Caesar. So there's really no doubt, there's no good reason to doubt that Jesus at least existed when you look at the biblical and extra-biblical evidence. And I enjoy that because in, in this book, you you give the citations and uh, you elaborate on why we as Christians are certain of the historical Jesus as well as even non-Christians if you look at the evidence. And if they're going to be totally objective, you have to come to this conclusion uh, that Jesus uh, existed, number one. And, uh, of course, we being Christians— we connect the dots and knowing that uh, he was sent from God. And, of course, we have experiential uh, knowledge as well. So we thank you for this little nugget in this book. So if you haven't obtained your copy, 
of the evidence for Jesus, please do so. Um, and you can get it through Amazon, correct? Yeah, that's right. Any bookseller can get it, but Amazon will ship it to you on a drone if you need it, by the way. Okay, great. Now, uh, how should we as believers respond to the various arguments against the resurrection? Um, if, If you want to touch on that. Yeah, well, first off, we need to take a deep breath. We're like, people, <laughs> it's important these days, Perseus. People have been challenging the historicity of the resurrection and the reliability of the accounts since the time of the apostle. Right. You see some of the objections appearing, like in the Gospel of Matthew, the claim that the apostle stole the body, you know, or maybe the gardener took the body or something like that. So this is nothing new. There always have been these kinds of objections, and there always will be. Second, just take them one by one and compare them with the known facts. So what happens is each of these alternative explanations can maybe account for some of the data, but never all of the data. So, for the example that, you know, Jesus uh, was appeared to, say, the apostles had hallucinations about the appearances of Jesus. Well, this could, in principle, account for the appearances of Jesus. After all, people do have hallucinations. But it can't account for the empty tomb. If they had hallucinations, the body still would have been there, right. and the tomb would not have been empty. Take the claim, which is not that popular today. I've seen it crop up a few times, that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. <laughs> well, that could account, again, for the appearances of Jesus, but not the virtually overwhelming evidence that Jesus really did die by crucifixion. Uh, So one by one, you just take these naturalistic hypotheses, compare them with the known data, and they all fall short. And we walk through some of these in the book, Mm -hmm. but I'll actually, after I, you know, walk through some of the evidence we cover in this book with students, I'll have them come up with hypotheses and their best alternative explanation for the resurrection. And then I'll say, just start comparing them to the evidence. And one by one, they just start to see that they can't account for all the data, uh, no matter the naturalistic hypothesis. Thank you for um, explaining that. Now, in the book, you also touch on um, the importance when we're talking about the uh, resurrection foes or people that reject the resurrection, when we talk about Jesus not dying or he swooned, um, please touch on how that is probably unlikely because of the Roman soldiers' detail to making sure that he was dead. Yeah, if I was going to come up with a naturalistic hypothesis, this would be one of the last ones that I endorsed. Why? <laughs> because the evidence that Jesus died, number one, is in the Bible. So all four Gospels attest to this. Acts attest to this. The letters of Paul attest to this. Uh, it, it's multiply confirmed in the Scriptures. Second, there's extra biblical evidence. Again, the early church fathers, and then you have people like Tacitus, a Roman writer, early second century, Josephus, a Jewish writer, end of the first century, that confirm the crucifixion of Jesus. But then you add on top of that the idea that they would invent a savior who was crucified is so counterintuitive. Right. Let us take a break to recognize our sponsors. And we'll be right back. 
Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. die on a cross, it was shameful in both the Roman world and in the Jewish world. It was not an honorable death. Right. So if they were going to invent a heroic death, it would have been the opposite of this. So there's just such a weight of evidence that even some scholars have invented a criteria that basically says, if you have any explanation for the origin of the Christian faith, and it doesn't include Jesus minimally being crucified, you can dismiss it from the start. Now, just for many scholars to endorse that shows how strong the evidence is that Jesus really died by crucifixion. And that's powerful. Uh, So I appreciate you elaborating on it. Now, my next question deals in the field of archaeology, biblical archaeology, and you touched on... um, the people, um, the places, as well as the culture. Can you um, unpack that for us as well? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about this, because this is one of the chapters that's totally new from the book Evidence That Demands Verdict. If we do an update on that book, I'm going to expand <laughs> on the content in this chapter. But basically, we we start to ask the question, is there archaeological evidence that at least kind of corroborates and helps confirm the existence of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. And there's a ton of stuff out there we couldn't even include in this book. But first off, it's just some of the people that are mentioned. So, for example, in Luke 3, 1, Luke mentions that Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene during the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when the ministry of Jesus began. Now, two Greek inscriptions have been discovered with the name Lysanias, one of which identifies him as the tetrarch of Abilene. Which would Abila, which would support Luke's claim right. in this reference. Now that's interesting because Lysanias is not a super significant person in the Gospels or the story of Luke. He's kind of incidentally mentioned and then supported in the record. But then you have people like Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas and at least three Herods that are confirmed. So over and over again, you find the people confirmed. But then the places about the gospel story, Bethlehem, for example, where Jesus was born, Nazareth, Capernaum, the Pool of Bethesda in John 5, the Pool of Siloam in John 9, and then the culture, just the way the gospels describe things like pots and jars and boats and skin diseases like leprosy and places like uh, the synagogues. It's really remarkable how well the gospel writers describe the people and places and events and culture of the time. 
and how that's been supported. Now, archaeology can't prove that this is true, right? because here's what people say, and I know you've heard this. They'll say, well, what about, I call this like the Spider-Man objection, where people say, <laughs> you know, Spider-Man takes place in New York City, and so that doesn't prove the story is true. I say that's correct, but they also didn't have the kind of realistic fiction that we have today, like Spider-Man and comic books in the first century. They didn't have that genre the way we do today. But second, you also have the gospel writers claiming that these events are true and they're witnesses. Right. Like Luke begins his gospel. He wasn't eyewitness, but he says specifically, many have undertaken, you know, to write up an account of the things that happened in front of us. We have investigated everything carefully. So the gospel writers claim to have investigated things, claim to be witnesses. So let's go to the archaeological record and see if it matches up with their claim. And it does. So it helps corroborate the larger case for the New Testament. Thank you for that. It, this is some good information. So if you're listening to us, we are on, uh, on air with Dr. Sean McDowell. And he and his father uh, collaborate on the new book, Evidence for Jesus. And I encourage you to get your copy as uh, soon as you can. Now, as a follow-up to what you just uh, talked about, are there any, let's say, New Testament claims um, that um, archaeology just caught up with, meaning that we know the Bible is true and archaeology or archaeologists are still uh, digging and they're still trying to find different things? Is there something that the Bible claimed and uh, uh, skeptics uh, talked about it in a negative sense, but then archaeology uh, found whatever it is that the Bible, in terms of maybe it could be a place uh, that the Bible stated. Uh, is there something that pops in your mind in, in regards to that question? Yeah, that's an interesting question. There is one example that for years, going back decades, it was claimed, even in the Harvard Theological Review, that there's just no or minimal evidence that anybody was crucified with nails. <laughs> and as far as I understand, that was accurate. Now, we know that Jesus was crucified with nails because Thomas in John 20 says right. he wants to see the nail marks in his hand and in his feet. And yet crucified victims, I think, were found with rope or with other mechanisms, not nails. So that didn't disprove the gospel account, but the failure to find that seemed to at least minimally call it into question until the first find that I'm aware of, which was in the 1960s, was of a man who was crucified in Palestine sometime in the middle of the first century mm. around the time of Jesus, who's been named Yehohanan, who was crucified with nails in his hands mm. and in his feet. And this is just one example. I had a chance to interview a a scholar by the name of Craig Evans, one of the leading historical Jesus scholars today, and he said over the past few years they found more and more examples, one even in kind of Britain uh, in the past year or two that was at the time under the Roman Empire, multiple cases of crucified victims, which just shows that the biblical writers got it correct before the archaeological record even emerged. I love it. I love it. Uh, it, it just reminds me of uh, what we learned in seminary, uh, that uh, something can still be true even if you don't have immediate evidence to support it. And so that's just a perfect example of what uh, you just talked about. 
My next question has to deal with the significance of the Old Testament prophecies uh, concerning Jesus, as you write in the book. Why is the Old Testament prophecies about Christ so important? Well, for one, it shows that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And there's a lot of people today that will hear, more so on the Internet, that will say Christianity has its roots in these pagan mystery religions and fulfilling messianic claims, uh, prophecies, uh, shows that the identity of Jesus is rooted in the Jewish scriptures. So the first thing it shows is that, and you see this, like, for example, all over the Gospels, and in particular the Gospel of Matthew, just over and over again, references to Isaiah and to the Psalms and to Micah, because we are to understand the person Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament. He is the Jewish Messiah. And second, fulfilled prophecy is used uh, specifically by the apostles when they're advancing the case for Christianity as a piece of evidence that Jesus really is the Messiah. And that's why Jesus writes to the, uh, uh, the two apostles in Luke 24, he says, didn't you know that the Old Testament spoke of me? Right. He's saying, if you rightly read the Old Testament, you would see that it points towards me as the Messiah, and that his life and story and ministry and claims are the culmination of what God has been doing through Israel. So I guess in some it matters because it shows that Jesus has, in Christianity, has Jewish roots, but second, that God has entered into history through the person of Jesus and that his claims can be corroborated as true. Mm. That is true. Um, now, my next question has to deal with um, the uniqueness of Jesus. You talk about, uh, before we even get to that, you talk about Jesus being the only way. Um, why did you feel that was necessary to include in the book? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the stuff included in the book are historical evidences like manuscripts and archaeology, you know, and fulfilled prophecy. So you're right, this could almost feel out of place, but the studies just show that especially with Gen Z and even the millennial generations now, one of the big objections to Jesus is this idea that he's the only way to get to God, that that's exclusivistic. And one of the biggest values today, you know, is diversity and inclusiveness. So Jesus claims to be the only way that seems to (laughs) defy both of those. Right. And so we really felt like people were going to only take seriously some of the historical evidence as if they understood a few things. And I won't go into too much depth, but look, every religion in its own way claims to be uniquely true. Islam claims to be uniquely true. Buddhism claims to be uniquely true. Hinduism will say Christianity is true, but it's true if you take Christianity under the umbrella of Hinduism and understand it on Hindu terms. Even atheists claim to be exclusively right and everybody else is wrong. So this isn't really unique to Jesus. But second, the question we ask is, what right does somebody have to be, what right does somebody have to claim to be the only way. And partly I say that person has to have the credentials to speak on spiritual issues. Well, Jesus lived a sinless life, fulfilled prophecy, performed miracles, and rose from the dead on the third day. If anyone has the right to speak about how to get to heaven, it seems to be Jesus. So even if somebody doesn't like 
practicing exclusivistic claims. They're going to have to come to grips with who Jesus claimed to be and all the miracles and other supernatural feet and even just the influence of his life that back that up. That is well said, and we've come to the end of our time, but thank you, Brother Sean, for joining us again on Sound Reasoning. It's always a blessing when you come and share your wisdom with us. Again, the book is Evidence for Jesus, um, and you want to get it, uh, the timeless answers for tough questions about Christ. Again, thank you for being on the show, and we appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks, Percy. It's really appreciate you and your ministry. Amen. Have a blessed day. And that's Dr. Uh, Sean McDowell. Um, he's an apologist. He's a professor at Biola, and um, he does a lot of research to help us to be able to answer uh, questions from a Bible-based perspective. So as always, we thank you all for listening and being a part of this show. Uh, continue to pray for sound reasons. Uh, continue to visit us online, uh, listen to the podcast, and please consider supporting us monthly. And remember to do for the truth what so many people do for a lot. Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy messages has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. And as always, we would like to thank our friends at Life Audio for their partnership with us on this broadcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you'll find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and a lot more. Please connect to lifeaudio.com. God bless. Hi, I'm Zach. 
And I'm Randy. And we're from Salty Saints Podcast. We're a theology and apologetics podcast. We hope to better equip you to be salt and light for your community. Uh, we hope that we can help you to go out and be a reflection of Jesus Christ to those around you, uh, to your friends and your family, and especially to those that do not know Christ. To find out more, subscribe at lifeaudio.com.